All right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? Hey, want to welcome all of our Faith Church family. Glad that you guys are here this weekend. And obviously, man, you've already been welcomed, but we want to make sure all of our first-time guests that you feel right at home. We are glad that you decided to hang out with us. And for all of us, whether this is home or whether you're just hanging out for the weekend, our prayer is, as a staff, what we pray for, what we prepare for, and what we ask God for is that every person would experience true life change. We believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, and that if you'll open up your heart wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with, whatever your aspirations are, that God will show up into your life and he will change you in a profound way. So amen. hope you guys, man, are ready today. So this past weekend, like many of you, uh, my, uh, my son, he's involved in travel basketball, and so... Yesterday, we got to hang out at one of his basketball tournaments, and uh, I'm just going to be honest, man. I, I love to see my son play, but I have real mixed emotions because um, sometimes when they're playing, they'll play two and three times a day. At some point, I start praying they lose so they don't advance. I want it close. Lord, let it be close, but let them lose. Is that bad? I mean, I know. Whatever. I can't, you know, I got my own problems. You got yours. We're going to get there. So... <laughs> But yesterday, uh, he had a game at 11, he had a game at 1, and so in between his games, uh, in this place they were playing in Huntsville, there were several gyms, so we were kind of moving around looking for another game to watch. Most of you guys know I'm a basketball fan, go LeBron James, go Cavs, get another one for the land in Jesus' name. And so I was looking for another game to watch, something competitive that could kind of burn the hour, and so the only ones that were playing in that hour were young kids, and typically... You know, young kids are not a real competitive game. But we happened to stop in this one gym, and I only went there because it was where he was playing next, sat down. I'm telling you, this game was absolutely incredible, and it was only because everyone in the gym was absolutely insane. It was a game of fourth graders. It seemed like they were playing for the gold medal, and it was the Olympics. They were like, they made it to the Final Four in the NCAA. They were playing for the Larry O'Brien, and they were NBA teams. I'm telling you, these kids were playing next level, playing their heart out. They were running over each other. There was a foul and a turnover every other second. But really the best part wasn't just the way the kids were playing, but the coaches, I'm telling you, the coaches had lost their mind. Now I'm just going to tell you, I just think, you know, uh, coaches and everybody that coaches, I give it up for you for giving time, but if you're going to be a coach, especially of young kids, I think it's your responsibility to teach fundamentals just fundamentals, let them have some fun, let them develop some basic skills, and you want to push them to compete. But I'm telling you, these coaches were yelling at these kids. This one coach, I, I kind of hated it and loved it at the same time because every time one of his players would create a turnover, he would immediately look at him and say, you don't want to play, get off my court. Who wants to play? And all the kids on the bench would raise their hand, get up in there, you play. He don't want to play, get off my court. Within a few seconds, another one would create a turnover. He would do the same thing. The other coach was yelling at the people at the, at the table, the scorekeeper's table. If you don't know anything about basketball, the coaches are legally not allowed to talk to the scorekeepers unless you're asking for, you know, the foul count or something like that. One coach was asking, actually telling the scorekeeper to change the, don't give it to him, he's got too many fouls, put it on him. It's crazy. Coaches off the reservation, yelling at the scorekeeper's table, yelling at the kids, kids walking around with tears in their eyes or blood, like, streaming down their cheeks. It was great. Parents, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I, my wife and I, we looked at each other at one point and thought we are the only sane people in the building. <laughs> Parents yelling at their kids, coaches yelling at the kids, kids yelling at each other. It was crazy. And I'll be honest, man, I'm looking at this whole fiasco and honestly loving every minute of it. <laughs> but I'm looking at the coaches thinking these people are crazy. Parents, you've lost your mind. 
right? Refs, what are you thinking? And I just came to a realization in that moment that sometimes I tend to go through life like I went through that game yesterday, and it's very easy. I think some of you guys can understand this. It's very easy like yesterday for me to judge everybody and put everybody underneath my magnifying glass. I mean, let's be honest. Like, I'm looking at these coaches thinking, here's how you need to coach. Here's how you need to discipline. Here's how you need to rotate the kids. Refs, here's how you need to ref this game. Parents, here's how you need to act. Here's how you need to... Like, I'm, just, I'm sitting in this gym feeling like I'm the only sane person, and I'm trying to get everybody to act, well, like me. And I realize that a lot of times I live my life putting everybody underneath the magnifying glass. I think if we're honest, I think a lot of us would realize we live a magnifying glass life. That not just yesterday in the gymnasium watching fourth graders play, but I tend, honestly and embarrassingly as I admit it, a lot of times I live my life putting other people underneath the magnifying glass. If you would ask me, I'd say typically I'm not a judgmental person, but even driving down the road, every other driver on the road is underneath my magnifying glass. I mean, there's the guy who's doing 43 and a 45, and I'm looking like, what are you doing? Go, move. It's 45, not, you know, not 43. And then there's the guy that does 55, and I'm like, my God, he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> what is he doing? There's the person that, you know, stops too soon. The light's yellow. I'm like, good night. You had another three seconds. Why did you stop? He's under my microphone, magnifying glass. Then there's the person when the light turns green. Like, they don't go in 1.3 seconds, and I'm from the north, and we do use our horn. It's there for a reason. It's a motivating factor. But let's be honest. I don't know about you, but for me, this is, and I've, I've wrestled with this through this week, especially getting ready today, about this realization of how sometimes I live my day, my life, looking at situations and looking at individuals and how easy it is for me to put people underneath my magnifying glass. I look at parents, you know, you go into Walmart or Target and there's always the one kid that's out of control and you know how you should handle them even though it's not your kid. You need to beat them. That's the answer really for everything. But I can't, you know, why don't that parent do something? Why don't she say something? I mean, and I put the parent underneath my magnifying glass of how they ought to parent their kids. Sometimes I do it walking into stores. Um, you know, I, I consider what we do as a church that we need to care about people, and we need to care about how we handle people. And so when I walk into businesses and I look at clerks or help that are inattentive to customers, it drives me, like, what are they doing? We go through fast food windows. How many people ask this question? What are they doing in there? Are, did they have to go find the chicken and pluck it before they killed it, fried it, and put it on my bun? Like, what are they doing? We put everybody under the magnifying glass. And here's the conclusion I came to. If everybody would just let me fix them, we would live in a wonderful world. <laughs> because I live, and I think if you're honest, you would admit that you live sometimes putting neighbors and coworkers and family members and society and government. We hear about President Trump, and probably like you, at least I can say for me, my first response sometimes is, What is he doing? Congress, what are you doing? You need to pass this law. You need to not pass this law. You need to do this. You need to get off Twitter. You need to, like, we put everybody, come on, you got to help me here. We put everybody under our magnifying glass. And here's what I want you to hear right out of the gate, that it is the epitome of hypocrisy to go through your day thinking that everyone else needs to change but you. 
Because that's how we live. When we put everybody underneath the magnifying glass, we see everybody else's shortcomings, everybody else's mistakes, and it's so easy to miss our own. The funny thing is Jesus, he comes on the scene and he says this. He says, how can you get the splinter out of your brother's eye and not deal with the log in your own eye? See, I think it's easy for us today, and I think as we look around, and certainly as I look at myself, that we live in a splinter generation, that we look at everybody else's shortcomings, and we see where everybody else is missing the mark, and where everybody else is messing up, and we seem so quick to look and see and realize everybody else's splinter, but have you ever noticed how easy it is for, for us to overlook our log, our log, our log? We have logs, and we're busy looking so today we're continuing the series we started several weeks ago entitled Soundtrack. We're looking at some common songs in culture and pulling some truths out and looking at what God's word has to say. And you step on the scene today. Can we give it up? Come on for Brianna and Lenny who killed Man in the Mirror. And Michael Jackson, he, he poses this question, this rhetorical question, you know, about making this world a better place. Like what a thought. Like, I think if I was asked this room, like, how many of you here want to make this world a better place? Who would like to make this world a better place? Everybody. I mean, we look around and we want it to improve. We want it to get better. We want it to become more moral. We want it to change. We want it to evolve. Like, that's easy. We ask the question. Michael Jackson poses this rhetorical question about making the world a better place. The question is, how do we do it? How do we make this world a better place? Well, I think a lot of us are quick to say that we wanted a better place. I think probably if I could talk to you, and certainly I would just tell you my answer. It's unfortunate, but it's true. If you were to ask me how we would make this world a better place, my answer probably would be they need to change. They need to change. That group needs to stop it. That group needs to start up. They need to quit. My neighbors need to get it together. These parents need to stop this. They need to do more of that. Come on. My answer for changing this world is somehow looking at the world, telling the world they need to change. And that is our quick response is that other people need to change for this world to be better. In fact, I want us to really today, if you're a Christ follower, to hone in for a few minutes. If you're not a Christ follower, if you're just here hanging out, if you're just searching, I think maybe today we can still come to a consensus together on what Jesus said. See, when we want, to want the world to change, there's something wrong with that because the world right now, especially, we want to legislate morality. We want Congress to pass the right laws to fix what's broken in culture. And let's be honest, the world we live in is broken. The world we live in is messed up. Whether you can agree or not, there is bigotry in our culture. There is hatred in our culture. There's jealousy in our culture. There's envy in our culture. There's all kinds of things happening in the society around us. And the response of many people is that Congress needs to pass a law to fix it. And so Jesus, he addresses this topic about making the world a better place and taking the path that people in society wants to take. And here's Here's what it says, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Check this out. It says, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law. Everybody say religious law. So this is a group of people who are dealing with a very specific set of laws, religious law, moral law. And it says these religious professionals, these religious professors, they show up, they arrive from Jerusalem to see Jesus, and they ask him, hey, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? 
For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand washing before they eat. Now, just so we're clear, this is not a group of like second graders. But this is Jesus' disciples. And the religious law at that time was this, that if you ate your food without washing your hands, you were ceremonially unclean. You were broken. There's something wrong with you. And it wasn't just the, the bacterial thing. It was spiritually, you're unclean if you don't wash your hands before you eat. And so these religious professionals and professors are calling out the disciples of Jesus saying, hey, they're eating and they didn't wash their hands. What's up with that? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus says this in verse 18. But the words you speak come from the, come on, read it with me, the heart, and that's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will, come on, say it, never defile you. You know what he's saying? Here's what you need to hear today in the society we live that wants to legislate change in this world. What Jesus is clearly teaching is that external laws will never deal with internal problems. Like you can pass laws. Here's, here's his point. If the disciples would have washed their hands, did it change their heart? If they didn't wash their hands, did it change their heart? So keeping the law or not keeping the law of washing their hands had nothing to do with their heart. And so that means no Congress, no individual, we can't mandate or legislate the change that needs to take place. The only way the change can take place is we got to find somebody who can fix and manage and restore the heart. And I just got good news today. I know somebody who can fix the heart of every human being. And so he asks the question, he says, again, Michael Jackson posed this question, right? If you want to make the world a better place. Well, we do. So how do we do it? How do we make the world a better place? Surprisingly enough, Michael Jackson had it right. He said, you got to take a look in the mirror. Take a look at yourself and make a change. It starts, if we're going to change this world, it starts with us, with us as individuals. The goal and the answer is not for us to change humanity or to change culture or we need to change Democrats or Republicans or we need to change what's happening in law enforcement or we need to change this race or this religion. It's not us changing the masses in mass. It's us changing ourselves one individual at a time. That's what ultimately will change the world that we live in. So the question is, if you want to change the world, are you up to being changed yourself? Because that's what's going to change things. In fact, when you ask the question, how do we change it? Again, he answers the question. You take a look at yourself. Well, how do you look at yourself? You do it with mirrors. You do it with mirrors. And so at some point, we got to put down the magnifying glass, and we got to pick up the mirror. In fact, here's what, uh, what, what you need to know. Mirrors, I know this is true. You know this is true. Um, mirrors are kind of cool. Mirrors are everywhere we go in society, culture. You don't have to go very far. And you're going to find a mirror in your home, in public places. Mirrors are everywhere. I found, I did a little bit of research and I found out that the average person, how many times they look at the mirror, you want to know what it is? The average woman looks in a mirror or a reflective service, uh, surface 16 times a day. So we're like, uh, at least. However, the average man looks at a reflective service, surface. 23 times a day, which means they had to have taken Pastor Ronnie Pogue into consideration in the survey. <laughs> 23 times a day. Now think about this. Think about this. All of the times that people take 
the opportunity to glance into a mirror. Obviously, some people do it because they're narcissistic. Some people do it because they like the way they look. But most of us in this room, the reason we look in mirrors in the morning, the reason we stop and look in a mirror before we exit a restroom is because we want to make sure that there's something not on us that we're not aware of. We're depending on the reflective surface to reveal to us something that maybe other people may see. In fact, I would say it this way. Watch this. Mirrors expose what others can easily see, but we can easily miss. When you're putting everybody else underneath the magnifying glass, you can see their mistakes and you can see their shortcomings and you can see where they're falling short. But what God calls us to is to put down the magnifying glass and pick up the mirror. Because when you look inside of a mirror, you're no longer focused on what other people are going through and what other people's issues are. Now you're looking at yourself and now you can see what maybe other, everybody else has been seeing. See, when I sit in that gymnasium and I'm judging parents and I'm judging referees and I'm judging fourth graders on the course, I can see them. But what God wants us to see the most is not everybody else. God wants us to see ourselves, and we do that through a mirror. Come on, somebody. So think about all the times, maybe you yourself, I know this happened to me, times I finally looked in a mirror and realized something that was there all along that I had been missing. Uh, several months ago, I was, got up in the morning, did what I needed to do to come to the office, was getting ready, jumped in the car, was driving in. And I don't know how I missed a mirror that entire morning, but at one point I looked up into the rearview mirror and realized that I had gotten out of the shower, put no product in my hair, and did not touch it with a brush or a comb. It doesn't always look this good is what I'm saying. <laughs> I looked up and I was like, oh, Lord. Here's the thing. If I would have walked into this place, everybody would have known my hair was jacked up. But I didn't realize it until I looked into a mirror. What was obvious to everybody didn't become obvious to me until I looked into a mirror. See, I can see your shortcomings with the magnifying glass, but I can only see mine if I look into a mirror. Come on. And we all of us in this room, we all depend on mirrors all the time for everyday things. I, I got this. There's a, there's a part in my teeth. I'm just being honest. If we ever go out to eat, it's going to happen. It's like a magnet for food. I don't know why it is. So when I get done eating, I'm always very self-conscious that food is not hung up in between these two particular teeth. So if we're eating together, I'm like, because I just want to make sure it's not there. And if I can, I'll take a little water and I'll swish it around to make sure it's not there. But I can't tell you how many times I have sat with people, some of you in this room, and I'm talking about you, <laughs> and have eaten lunch with you and laughed with you. <laughs> and then got in my car and left. Good to see you, brother. Great having lunch with you, sister. Awesome hanging out with you. It was one. We should do this again sometime. And then I get in my car, I look in the mirror, and I have a spinach salad in my teeth that you never said a word about. But mirrors don't create reality. They only expose reality. That was there the whole time, whether I realized it or not. The only way I became aware of it is by looking in a mirror. And so James... He coincides with the opinion of Michael Jackson and tells us the way that we're going to change this world is to take a moment and to look into a mirror. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 22. But don't just listen to God's word. Come on, everybody say that. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. In verse 25, come on, every voice read this. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Basically, what he's calling us to is 
if we're going to live this life and we're going to be the change that we want to see happen in the world that we live in, it's going to happen by us looking into the mirror of God's word. In fact, James, he calls the mirror of God's word the perfect law because in all the mirrors that we see around us, not all of them are perfect. Did you know that? There are some mirrors that give you distorted images. We know when we go into, um, into a fun house, you guys know the places that show up on the corner. They're there for a weekend. They cost you a kidney and an arm to ride the rides. You better be saved because there's a good chance you will die on one of them. Cotton candy, $97. I actually bought a bag, $97. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing cotton candy, though. But you go there, and, and, and anyone, right, they always have these little fun houses. They've gotten smaller and gotten a little cheaper. But all of them still have those mirrors, and each one of those mirrors give you a really distorted view of yourself, right? You'll stand in front of some of them, and the mirror will kind of twist and distort your image, and you'll look shorter and fatter than you really are. <laughs> and there's some of them that make you tall and lean, which I love, you know, kind of stretch you out. And it's not just there. There are mirrors everywhere that distort your image. Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, but did you know in many dressing rooms, the mirrors that you're looking at are not true mirrors? In fact, for a long time, and I did some research and tried to find out if this is still true or not, but at least for a long time, you know how you put something on? Let's be honest, I'm in this with you. You put something on in a dressing room, you're like, mm mm, I do look good. And you buy it and you go home and put it on. You're like, this don't look good. It's because the mirror in dressing rooms, they actually create them to be slightly concave that when you look in it, it has a slimming effect. So when you put something on, you think, I look slim. No, you don't. You're looking at a distorted <laughs> reflection of yourself and it's a mirror. Now, some studies I read say they don't do that anymore. They're not allowed. Some people, some people just realize that it's immoral to do it, so they stop doing it. So a lot of dressing room mirrors, they're still true, but what they do is they actually set it back at about a 12-degree angle. So what it does, it gives you an elongated reflection of yourself so you look thin and you look good. But again, it's an image that's not true. And so you're going to have to be careful that if you're going to look at a reflection of yourself, you have to make sure it's a true image. And James says that God's Word is a perfect law. Everybody say perfect. It's a perfect mirror. There are a lot of mirrors in this world that are not perfect. The mirror of this world, it will always play the shame game with you. The world's mirror will always reflect back to you what you will never be. You'll never do that. You'll never achieve that. You'll never get that business. You'll never find that marriage. You'll never find that perfect person. You'll never get ahead in life. It'll always reflect a distorted image to you. The mirror of the enemy will always reflect to you Come on, he'll reflect you the condemnation game. He'll always reflect you what you'll always be. You'll always be a mess up. You'll always deal with that addiction. You'll always be in that struggle. You'll always be alone. And it always reflects back to you a distorted image. But God's perfect law, the perfect mirror, will always give you a perfect image. And God's mirror always reflects to us who we were always meant to be. I want everybody in this room to know something. You were always intended to be a child of God. You were always intended to be an overcomer. You were always intended to walk in victory. You were always intended to be blessed. You were always intended to be holy. You were always intended to reflect the child of God that you follow and that you are and that you serve. God always gives us a perfect reflection of who we were meant to be. And if we're not there yet, when you look in the mirror, God will help us not just to see ourselves, but to become the person we were called to be because it's the only mirror that not reflects an image, but gives us power to be what we see. Come on, somebody. 
So the challenge is, think about this, all of us in this room that look at mirrors multiple times a day. Again, a lot of us, we look in the mirror for reflection to see, are we missing anything, something that needs to change? And I started thinking about this for women that look at themselves 18 times on average a day. For men that look at themselves 23 times a day on average. What if we spent just half of that time instead of looking at cosmetic changes? If we looked at and considered and wondered about real changes that need to take place. The changes we need most are not cosmetic, they're character. Instead of thinking, do I look good in this? Is there toothpaste on my cheek? Is my hair right? Do I have an eyebrow out? When you get 40, you understand that one. Like, instead of looking at these small cosmetic changes, I wondered if all of us in this room, and instead of putting everybody else around us underneath our magnifying glass of how they need to change, of how they need to improve, of how their life needs to be different, if we looked in the mirror and carefully considered the character change that we need to go through about my heart, about my life, about how I'm living. See, the challenge really is this for all of us in this room, and this is where I want to hang for a minute is a lot of us in this room, we are living the blame game and we are blaming everybody else for the mess we're in. And we're doing that because we're living with the magnifying glass and not looking in the mirror. And what I want us to hear today is we need to put down the magnifying glass and pick up the mirror. I just want to challenge every couple in this room, in your marriage, if you want to have a great marriage, quit looking at your spouse under your magnifying glass and looking at their weaknesses and seeing what they're not, expecting them to become. Put down the magnifying glass and pick up the mirror. Instead of expecting your wife, because I'm married and I'm a guy, for you that are on the other sex, think of it that way. But I want you to understand, instead of saying, my wife isn't this, and my wife doesn't look like she did in high school, and she don't, she don't cook like mama did, and she don't, we don't sleep together enough, and she don't meet my needs enough. You're putting her underneath your magnifying glass. You need to pick up a mirror and be the person God's called you to be. I'm going to love my wife the way God loved me, and gave, me, gave himself for it. I'm going to give to my wife. I'm going to pour into her. I'm going to sacrifice for her. It's not about how giving she is. It's about how giving I can be to her. Put down the magnifying glass and pick up a mirror. Instead of culture and society looking around at people that make mistakes and have shortcomings and aren't living up to what your standards are, put down the magnifying glass and pick up a mirror. Who are you in society? Who are you in culture? How are you living in this neighborhood, in your community, in your subdivision? What difference are you making? Because Jesus said, listen, let's quit focusing on what everybody else is doing in their splinter, and let's look at the log in our own eye. How am I loving my neighbor? And let's stop worried about how my neighbor is not loving me. Put down the magnifying glass and pick up a mirror. Come on, somebody. Parenting. Like there needs to be rules and we need to be, have some level of discipline. But some of us, man, are living this, this life through our children. We put them underneath our magnifying glass. Are they achieving? Are they getting the right grades? Are they performing and excelling on the, on the gridiron, on the court? And we push them and we drive them because they're underneath our magnifying glass and they're not measuring up. What will change your household is if you put down the magnifying glass and pick up your mirror. What kind of father are you? What kind of wife are you? 
See, again, this call for all of us in this room where we want to change the world by changing people, by changing groups of people, by changing what they think, how they live, and what they believe, Jesus brings it back and he spins it on its head and points it back. He says, listen, you're never going to bring change by the magnifying glass. The change is only going to happen by the mirror. And so what would happen in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your home, in your business, if you put down the magnifying glass and you picked up the mirror. There's a story found in 2 Kings chapter 22 I want to look at for just a minute. It's the story of this young, he's a kid, he's, he's eight years old, when he becomes the king of Judah. He's a king. Obviously, eight years old, he takes the throne because he's in the family line. But at eight years old, he becomes the king. And if you don't know the story, Josiah actually becomes one of the most godly kings to ever rule. Man, God is so honored by this young kid who becomes a young man. But you follow his story, and he starts not being who he ultimately becomes. In fact, the entire nation of Israel, man, is living wheels off, making decisions, living life that totally dishonor God. In fact, when you read the history and you read how they're living, they're worshiping false gods, they're making sacrifices to false idols. They have totally forgotten the God who delivered them from Egypt, and they're serving and worshiping false gods. And the story picks up and tells us about this young king, this young kid, Josiah. And he ultimately wants to make the temple where they're worshiping God or attempting to amongst other gods. He wants to take it through a rehab. He wants to do a rebuild of the temple. And so he sends one of his servants to the temple to go find out how much money is in the treasury. Hey, go to the temple, take an account of the money there, let's start the rehab project, start paying people out of the money, and just let's, let's roll. Well, his servant goes down, he tells the people at the temple, hey, King Josiah, he wants to do a rehab. How much, do we have enough money? And the guy, the head accountant, the head CPA of the temple, goes back into the treasury where all the money's kept, and he comes out with a dusty book. <sighs> He's like, I found this book back here. Where there should be money, I found a book. And he says, the book is it's the copy of God's law. Here they had forgotten God's law. They had forgotten God's word. It had been buried in a back room. And so they pick it up, and this servant goes back to King Josiah, and he starts to read God's law that they had forgotten and they had forsaken. They had lost their mirror, and so they lost their way. And here's where the story picks up. Check this out. 2 Kings 22, 11 says this. As King Josiah is hearing the law, as he's looking in the mirror. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, come on, read it with me. He tore his clothes in despair. Like he realized in that moment, looking into the perfect mirror, looking into the perfect law, like, man, I messed up. Like I thought I was doing okay. Instead, he realized that he was broken. The Bible says that, man, he tore his clothes, which was a sign of repentance. Like, God, I'm sorry, I missed it. And the thing I want you to see, and the reason I'm sharing this is, being the king, he could have quickly legislated change for the entire kingdom. This is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to change. What I want you to see, instead of the king legislating change for everybody else, he changes himself before he attempts to change anybody else. He's the one who tore his clothes. He's the one man who was upset. And so 2 Kings twenty two eighteen, 18, the story goes on. 
He talks to a, a prophet. Hey, what does God want us to do? We found the, the law again. We found the mirror. Like, what, what now? And here's, here's the message that Josiah gets from God. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to speak to the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and you humbled yourself before the Lord when he heard what I said against this city and against the people that this land would be cursed and become desolate. Because anytime you follow your own way instead of God's way, it always ends bad. And he says it was going to end bad, but it's not going to end bad. Here's why. Because King Josiah, you tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, said the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city. See, communities are made whole through one person being broken. See, we don't have to change the world. We don't have to change Democrats or Republicans or change people of color or certain creeds or certain belief systems. Like, our job to change the world isn't changing masses of people. It's changing us one person at a time. It's putting down the magnifying glass and picking up the mirror. The world has a lot of broken people, but not enough people that are broken. Like, this world's jacked up. Everybody knows that. But the way we're going to change is for us to get broken before God. For us to look into the perfect law, to look in that accurate mirror and realize who we were meant to be. And we see a reflection that's not measuring up instead of putting everybody else under the magnifying glass. God, help me to be that person. God, give me your power to change. Give me your power to overcome. Give me your power to grow. And I'm telling you, when you come and you're broken before God, that's how God builds you up. And King Josiah, he changed a nation because he was one person that looked in the mirror and said, God, help me to be that before we put it on anybody else. And so I want to give you one thought to leave with today. If you're like me and you're quick to put people under the magnifying glass and slow to look at the mirror, here's what I want you to hear. Every opportunity this week, when you get judgmental, when you put people underneath the magnifying glass, here's what you ought to think. Before I look at thee, what about me? Before I look at you, before I judge you, before I think about how you ought to parent, how you ought to do your business, how you ought to handle your neighborhood, before I judge you, before I put you underneath my magnifying glass, before I look at thee, what about me? Come on, everybody say it. Before I look at thee, what about me? When you look at your wife this week and you think about maybe what she's not, or you look at your husband and how he doesn't do this anymore, before I look at thee, what about me? Come on, say it one more time. Before I look at thee, what about me? Before you pick up your magnifying glass, pick up your mirror. And God will change this world, not by changing the masses, but by changing people one person at a time. So Father, I come in the name of Jesus and I pray that God, all of us in this room, God, who are quick to look outward, God, quick to look around us for change. God, I pray that we would pick up the perfect, the perfect mirror it's your word. And God, help us to help us to evaluate ourselves before we evaluate anyone else. Help us to judge ourselves before we look around. And God, I pray that you would work the change we want to see in us first. Before I look at thee, what about me? In Jesus' name.